Right, shall we pray before we come to the Word? Lord, we just thank you for your Word. Lord, we just thank you that it's sufficient for, for all that, that we need. Lord, we can turn to your Word in all times and in all seasons and Lord, you will speak to us through it. Lord, we just pray that as we come to your Word this morning, we just pray that you're with me, that I uh, speak your Word faithfully and Lord, I also just pray that we have hearts that are open and, and ears that are attentive to, to hear what you are saying to us at, at this time. Amen. Well, I'm somewhat relieved to see that uh, my notes are still here. Um, we're, we're going to be looking at Job this morning, so um, Job chapter 19 is, is where we're turning. And Job had some mates who uh, gave him some dodgy advice and I'm starting to think that I've got some dodgy mates. <laughs> Last time that I came to speak to you, I, I actually had a mate of mine, a good mate of mine, he, he rang up the day before and he found out that I was, I was going to be uh, preaching the, the day after. So he thought he'd offer me a bit of encouragement. And he said, Michael, um, what, what part of scripture are you taking out of context tomorrow? <laughs> Mates like that, huh? Okay, so we're, we're turning to Job 19. And as we know, Job was a good man who was suddenly overcome with great suffering. And he lost everything. He, his children were killed. His servants were killed. His livestock was stolen or burnt up by fire. And then on top of all of this, Satan afflicted him with painful boils and they just absolutely covered his body. So he was covered from head to foot in these things. And those around him offered him little comfort. His wife even asked him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And then his friends, they turned up and they turned up and they were going to sort of comfort him. And their comfort was that they were offering was actually confrontation. So they were confronting him with their comfort. They were convinced that his suffering was the severe consequences of his own sin. Now there is a lot that we can learn from the book of Job. We can learn to be patient in our own trials We can also learn that no matter what happens to us, God always writes the last chapter. Things may not live up to the fairy tale that we were expecting, however, he is in control and as Sue has testified this morning, we can trust him no matter how painful or how overwhelming things are. We don't need to be afraid. We can also learn that there is a whole world of people out there who are suffering or going through trials. And God sometimes calls us not to stand back, but sometimes to go to those people, to put our arm around them and to stand with them. And again, Sue testified this morning how people from all over the world were thinking about her, were praying for her, were standing beside her. Now, there is one statement that Job makes amongst everything that is going on that is quite outstanding. He confesses that it is God and God alone who can save him. And this statement that Job makes reveals to us something of the nature of God. God loves his people and he wants to rescue them. So Job chapter 19 verse 25 to 27. 
For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Despite everything that has happened, Job trusts the Lord and he identifies him as his Redeemer. This morning we're going to look at what this means. The words Redeemer or Redemption are words that we Christians are fairly familiar with and this is not surprising as they appear many, many times throughout the Bible. And even outside of Christianity, the concept of redemption is, is widely known. We see this concept often on telly, in our movies and in books. The concept of someone making up for the bad things that they have done. The concept of someone making up for lost time or a lost portion of their life. So quite often we see a story of someone who is seeking redemption. Over the next wee while, we'll take a bit of a whirlwind look at what Scripture tells us about redemption. And this is uh, the second part of a series that I'm doing on the salvation of sinners. Now if you remember back to the last time I spoke, we looked at propitiation. And propitiation was just a big word that meant appeasing God's wrath against the sin that permeates our life. And like redemption, propitiation is only achieved by the death of Jesus Christ in our place. We in ourselves could not possibly turn aside the wrath of God against sin. He supplied the means for it to happen and he did this because he loved us. Redemption is similar in that way, that God supplies the means for it. And when we look to our ultimate Redeemer, we realise that it is Christ. So let's just do a little bit of wordplay and um, just look at what redemption means. So if you were to look up uh, a dictionary, you'll come across quite a few meanings or quite a few definitions for the word redemption. So um, redemption can be an act of redeeming or atoning for a fault or a mistake. Uh, it is also is a word that can mean deliverance or rescue. And when we look at theology or Christianity uh, in particular, we see that it is the deliverance from sin and it equates to salvation. It can also be a repurchase. So you've sold something and then you go and buy it back. So it's like you're repurchasing something. Uh, And redemption can also mean paying off something um, like a mortgage or a bond. So I know I'm looking forward to the day that I've redeemed my mortgage as possibly quite a few of us are. And also it can mean to recover something similar to a pledge. Now when we look into the use of the word redemption in scripture we can refine it a bit more and and fine tune it a bit. And it means to buy back something either as a purchase or a ransom. The Greek words for redeem and redemption are derived from a word that translates as a ransom or a price for release. And this word was used in ancient times in relation to the purchase of slaves. Uh, Leon Morris, 
he's an Australian New Testament scholar. Um, he, he's no longer with us. But he illustrates this um, concept of redemption in relation to Christ. And he's made this statement. We have been ransomed by Christ, not merely redeemed or delivered by him. So there's that whole thing that Christ has ransomed us. So when we put all of this together, we come up with the Gospel's basic definition of what redemption is. So basically, mankind is lost, the death of Christ has paid the price to purchase or ransom back his church. Now when we talk about his church, we're talking about his church collectively. Um, We're also talking about the church individually. And this price was a very high price. And because God paid, paid that price or that ransom, the church now belongs to him. So the church collectively, Jesus is the Lord of church. Us as individuals, Jesus is our Lord as well. And um, this morning, as, as we work our way through this, we're going to break this down into three sections. So the first one that we're going to look at is our predicament and that's just where we're at and what our default situation is and that is that mankind is outside of God and because mankind is outside of God uh, we are lost. The second thing that we will look at is the price that is paid or the ransom that is paid and um, as we know we identify that as the death of Jesus Christ. And the third thing we're going to look at, and this will be probably the the application side of our message this morning, is that because Christ has paid a price for us, we now belong to Christ. So what does that look like? What does that look like on the ground and how do we practically work that out? So we belong to Christ, we are the redeemed church. So we'll, we'll come back to those three aspects of redemption soon. But coming back to Job, there are a couple of interesting things that I want to point out about his confession that his Redeemer lives. First of all, unbelievers and believers both need the Redeemer. Quite often when we talk about things such as redemption or salvation or things like that, we consider them to only as being relevant to unbelievers or new Christians. However, when we look at Job, we see that this is only part of the story. We read in Job 1 that Job was a blameless and upright man, a person who feared God and shunned evil. God even stated to Satan that there was no one else like Job. So here you have a guy who had a solid relationship with the Lord. We would consider him, if he was here today amongst us, we would consider him to be a super saint. And this is even displayed in his responses to all the horrific things that are going on around him. And in his response we we can really see the calibre of the guy. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God. He didn't lose a plot, he didn't respond in anger, He even considered his wife's suggestion of cursing God as foolishness. And on top of all of this, he declares to those around him that his Redeemer lives. His God is faithful and he can trust in him. So in Job, we have a really solid man of God. His confession that God is his Redeemer is not a case 
of a person who is a non-believer recognising his need for the living God to rescue him. Rather, it is a man of God who is facing great troubles who recognises his need for the living God to rescue him. He is looking forward in hope to the redemption that God and only God can provide. We can take this point a little bit further. When we are redeemed by God, we belong to God. So, by recognising God as his redeemer, Job is not only stating that God is his rescuer, he is also stating that he belongs to God. And in doing so, he is saying two similar things. Firstly, it doesn't matter what situation that Job finds himself in, he is stating that he belongs to God. It could be good times, it could be bad times, it could be those in-between sort of nothing times. Job's redeemer lives regardless of what his situation is. Secondly, when Job is doubts our greats, he states that his redeemer lives. He is saying, I belong to God. It doesn't matter what Satan or for that matter what life throws at me, God is my rescuer and I belong to him. When we are facing some overwhelming situation, we can draw inspiration from Job. We too can declare that our Redeemer lives. It doesn't matter what is happening to us, God is our Saviour and we belong to him. Why is this important? It is because we recognise that it is only God who can save us. And he's pretty good at that. He's been doing it for a long time. And this brings us to the second interesting point of Job's confession. And that is that God has always been in the salvation and the redemption business. The statement from Job is very is in a very early assertion that we find in the Bible. Now, if we were to look for the book of Job in our Bible, we'll find that it appears somewhere near the middle, just just before Psalms. But if we are actually to date the the book of Job, we would find that Job actually existed around about the time of Abraham. So that's right back here near the beginning of Genesis. Why is this significant? Well, it shows us that right from the beginning, our God was the Redeemer. Redemption and salvation are not just a New Testament thing. God has always been the Redeemer. God has been in the salvation business for a long time and Job was just confessing an aspect of God's nature that has always been there. As you know, our Bibles are divided into the Old and New Testaments and sometimes we can get this picture that God was somewhat different and a little bit meaner in the Old Testament. And when it comes to the New Testament, that's when he softens up a bit and that is when he becomes our Saviour and Redeemer. Well, this is a wrong picture of God. This is not how God is. God is the same throughout all of eternity. Job's confession of the Redeemer confirms this. Throughout Scripture, God is the Redeemer, whether it is the New Testament, the Old Testament, whether it is yesterday, today or tomorrow, our Redeemer lives. Now before Christ there were many shadows of his redemption. As we read through the Old Testament we find that there is a lot of redeeming going on in the Israelite community. If animals 
people, land or even the nation of Israel were alienated from who they belonged to, then they could be brought back at the right place. All of these things point to the ultimate redeemer, which is Jesus. One example is the kinsman and redeemer. This is the person who has the right or the duty to buy back land that has been sold or alienated. And he does this so that the land is kept in the family or the tribe. Um, The most well-known examples of this are Boaz and Jeremiah. So we're just going to read a little bit from Jeremiah and this is what he says about him being the kinsman redeemer. And Jeremiah said, this is from Jeremiah 32, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it back. And then, lo and behold, Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah was being the kinsman redeemer uh, on behalf of his family. He was buying back a field that they must have sold at some stage. Uh, The practice of redeeming land comes from Leviticus and we can see in Leviticus 25 that if someone became poor, they could sell some of their possessions, for example, their land. And then a redeeming relative could later on come and buy back those possessions. Or if the poor person who sold the land in the first place, if he comes into money, they could buy it back for themselves. Uh, We can also read in Leviticus 27 uh, about redeeming peoples or property which are dedicated to God. So um, um, you'll notice up on the PowerPoint we've got lots and lots of scriptures there. They're just there for reference. I promise you I'm not going to read them all out. Um, So in the first case, you could redeem animals that were dedicated to God. So the firstborn animals belonged by right to God. However, donkeys and unclean animals could be bought back or redeemed by the owner. And there's also quite a few different examples of people being redeemed and some of these are actually quite interesting. So the first one, um, the first example that we have here is that when there was a national census, every person had to pay a ransom for themselves and I'm glad that practice is, is, is out of vogue so not only every five years we would get a whole lot of papers to fill in, we'd probably get a tax bill as well. Uh, the other thing that was happening in ancient Israelite was that the firstborn son belonged to God but in certain, certain circumstances they could be redeemed, they could be bought back. And this is quite an interesting one. If you owned a bull which gored someone to death and you knew that that bull was dangerous but you didn't keep it confined, you didn't keep it kept in, then the penalty for that was actually quite harsh. You were, you were facing the death penalty. But however, in some cases, you could redeem your life by paying a sum of money. So who, who knew that being a farmer in ancient Israelite was such a risky business? You need a little bit of cash behind you, I think, especially if you've got a couple of dodgy bulls. The other thing that you could do in ancient Israelite, 
Israel is that you, if you were poor, you could sell yourself into slavery. However, later, if you could afford it, you could then redeem yourself or be redeemed by a relative. So when we look at all of these cases, in all of these situations, someone paid the price to buy back either an animal or a person or land. However, when it comes to the entire nation of Israel, it wasn't a person who acted as their redeemer, it was God himself. Now there are two major occasions in the history of ancient Israel where God redeemed the entire nation. The first was when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Uh, We can read about that in Exodus 6 and Deuteronomy 7. Exodus 6 verse 6 Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And when we read in Deuteronomy, we, we see this echoed again, but we also see the motivation that God had for doing this. He was motivated as the Redeemer. So Deuteronomy 7 verse 8, But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out again with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there we see why God did this. He loved the ancient Israelites and he'd also made a covenant for them. He'd sworn an oath that they would be a great nation and um, so he, he kept those things. The second example that we have in ancient history of um, ancient Israel is the deliverance from exile and captivity in Babylon. And I've got a scripture here from Isaiah 51 now and this is quite a well known scripture so please don't burst into song as we read through this. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So in some versions that that reads as so the redeemed of the Lord shall return. God has always been in the saving and redeeming his people. When we look at how he redeemed the Israelites from slavery and bondage in Egypt and how he redeemed them from exile and captivity in Babylon, we can draw parallels to how Christ has redeemed us from the slavery, from the bondage and the captivity to sin. He has redeemed us from exile in the world. He has paid the price. He has paid the ransom and brought us out of slavery. He has brought us out of bondage, out of exile and out of captivity. And what was the price that God paid to redeem the Israelites out of Egypt and Babylon? Well, it appears that he paid with his divine power. So when we read through those scriptures, we see him talking about his outstretched arm, his divine power. And and that's confirmed again for us in Nehemiah Chapter 1, verse 10. Now these are your servants, these talking about the, people, the exiles that have returned from Babylon. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. All of these examples of redemption, whether it is the redemption of land, of animals, of people 
or the entire nation of Israel, they are shadows of the ultimate act of God's redemption. In Christ we again see God's power and outstretched hand paying a very costly price, a very high ransom to rescue and purchase the church, the church as a whole and the church as individuals and for them to become redeemed followers of Christ. So let's turn to the New Testament and investigate the redemption that God has provided for us. As people of the New Testament, our redemption is found in only one place and that place is through Christ. As we explore what this means, we will focus on three aspects of our redemption through Christ. So first of all, we will look at our predicament, which is that without Christ we are lost. Then we will look at the price and what was the cost involved. It was the death of Christ, which is often referred to as being the blood of Christ. Now this was a great price to pay and this is the only payment that could set us free. And lastly we'll be looking at what's probably our application part today. We will look at the fact that we belong to Christ because he paid that price for us, we belong to him. He purchased or ransomed us, now we belong to him. So first of all our predicament. When we are without Christ, we face a predicament similar to the Israelites. They were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. We are in bondage and slavery to sin. They were in exiled, they were exiled and held captive in Babylon. We are exiled from God and held captive to the trappings and the temptations of this fallen world. God redeemed and rescued the Israelites from Egypt and Babylon. And similarly, God has redeemed and rescued us from the power of sin in our lives. And in both cases, it was only God who could achieve this. So let's break this down a bit. Now we're just going to look at what it means to be um, outside of Christ and as I work through these things I'm going to sort of give you the, the bad news that's there, we're going to look at the good news and then we're going to look at the positive outcome because of that good news. So first of all our moral, bound, our moral bondage, um, we're, we're in moral bondage to our transgressions and sins. So the bad news is that without God we are in moral bondage to our sins and transgressions. Those things are our master. Those things control us and have a profound effect on how we live our lives and where our destiny is. The good news though is because of God's grace we have redemption and forgiveness of sin through his blood. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the old covenant. And because of this good news we have a positive outcome. He has delivered us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son and those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. The curse of the law. So we know that the law came into being um, in Moses' time. God gave uh, the, the people of Israel the law to protect them and to, to, to guide them in, in that but as we know it was hard work to trying to, to keep that law. So the bad news is 
because of mankind's inability to keep all, or for that matter even part of God's law, then mankind faces the penalty or the curse of breaking that law. And the good news is, is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and how has he done that? He became a curse for us. And the positive outcome that we have is that the blessing of Abraham is now available not just for the Israelites but also for the Gentiles which means that it is now available to everybody. So when we're talking about the blessing of Abraham what we were talking about is that time when um, God made a covenant with Abraham and said that you will become a great nation and you will be a blessing to the nations around you. Now those things were given to to Abraham because he was justified by faith. So the blessing of Abraham is now available to everybody. Also we can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith and also we may receive adoption into God's family. So again it's all we've become part of God's nation, we've become part of God's kingdom, we've become part of God's family. Um, now this next one is an interesting one that, that Peter talks about in his, um, in his letter and it's the empty way of life. So the bad news is without God our life is empty. Peter talks about the aimless conduct which we receive by tradition from our fathers or our forebearers. The good news is, is that we have been redeemed from this meaningless, meaninglessness by the precious blood of Christ who is the lamb without blemish and without spot. And lastly, the the last thing that we'll look at is wickedness. And this is, the bad news is of no surprise to any of us. The bad news is, is that evil abounds around us and within us. The things that others and that we are capable of doing can be quite scary. But however, the good news is, is that our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The outcome is is that he purifies us for himself as his own special people. So again, we are coming into the family of God. And not only that, um, because we are coming into the family of God, um, those we are his own special people who are zealous for good works. Right, let's turn to the price. It is undeniable that scripture acknowledges that the price for the redemption of the church and of individual Christians is the death of Jesus. Any reference that we read about in scripture in the, in the gospel message in regards to salvation, redemption, deliverance, all of those things, any reference that we read about talk about the means and the price paid to achieve those things. So in all cases the cost is the death of Jesus Christ. As we have worked our way through Luke and as you would have noticed as you read through any of the Gospels Jesus is fully aware of the price that is to be paid and he was willing to lay his life down. He often tells his disciples of what lays ahead for him and why. He predicts his death and resurrection a number of times. Now his quote from Mark 10.45 is a great example of this and it gives us 
insight into his nature. So this is Jesus speaking from Mark 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This cost was very high. When Peter refers to the cost of our redemption, he states that we were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver or gold. Now if we think of silver or gold or that, we think those things are quite valuable. But Peter says that we're actually redeemed by something that was even more valuable. It was the precious blood of the Lamb. The most common reference to Jesus giving his life or dying for us is the reference to his blood. When we refer to the blood of Christ, we are referring to his life, which was laid down. And you can understand why communion is a central part of the Christian's life. Next week, when we gather around the table, around the Lord's table, it's actually quite a funny expression, isn't it? It's not like we're going to all come and gather up around here, but but you know what I'm saying. When we come to communion next week, we will partake in the bread and the wine which represent the cost of our salvation, the cost of our redemption. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken and and the wine or the grape juice uh, represents the blood of Christ that was spilt. When we take the elements, we remember Christ and we remember his sacrifice. And when we come to the table, we come in an attitude of reverence, thankfulness and self-examination. The reason why we come in reverence and why we take communion quite seriously is because we acknowledge the great cost that was paid for the redemption of God's people. So Christ has paid a high price for his people and it follows on from this that we now belong to Christ. He is our Lord. He is the Lord over the church, that is his people collectively, and he is the Lord over us individually. And that is how he created us to be. If we look back into Genesis and we look back to Adam and Eve, we see that mankind was in the Garden of Eden. They were in paradise. And not only that, they were without sin and the effects of sin. And, and in fact, where they were in the, in the world was also not affected by the, um, the effects of sin. And on top of that, they were also in very close communion with God. They had a very good relationship with God. And then the fall corrupted mankind, corrupted the world, separating us from God. And all of this happened because of sin and its consequences. And then if we fast forward to the death and resurrection of Christ, we see that Christ paid the price of that sin, purchasing us back from our lost state. Christ paid the ransom that liberated us from the captivity of sin. We can now be restored to where we should be and we are now liberated and are free to come home. And even though the price has been paid in full, the process of restoral or the process of full redemption is still a work in progress. 
and we'll come back to that in a minute. The point is, is that we belong to Christ. He is our Lord. Last week, Calphane highlighted this to us when he challenged our view of Jesus. He said, how do you see the Lord? How do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus as your Lord or do you see Jesus as your peer? And that really just questioned how we view, our, our, how we view Jesus and how we live out our, our, the fact that Jesus is Lord of our lives. He said, Jesus is not our peer. And the challenge was, was do we live like Jesus is Lord? Now there's three things that I want to look at in closing and these three things can probably um, be part of our application today. The first thing is, do we live like Christ is Lord? And there's uh, three aspects of this that we will look at. Holiness, faithful ministry and worship. And running through all of these things is obedience. Now of course when we think of Christ being our Lord, we think about being obedient to Christ. And that is worked out in our holiness, in our faithful ministry and in our worship. So when we look at holiness, probably one of the best references to this is 1 Corinthians 6, which calls us to flee from sexual immorality. And we can apply this to all aspects of holy living. So 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every man, sorry, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Are we living holy lives before God? Or are there things hidden away that are defiling us? We belong to Christ and we were bought at a price. So my encouragement is is if you're finding yourself in that situation where you know that there is something not quite right in your life, that that there is something that doesn't stack up with the holiness that we should be living, is that you seek out the Lord, seek forgiveness, repent and then go on from there and glorify him in your body and in your spirit. Faithful ministry. We should be motivated to serve Christ. One of the benefits of us being redeemed from the curse of the law is that as Gentiles we can partake in the blessing of Abraham. Now part of this blessing is to be a blessing to the nations around us. So when we think of ourselves as being the church, part of that blessing is for us to be a blessing to those outside of the church. So God is calling us to faithful ministry and it's not necessarily something big or heavy like coming up here and preaching, though I'm quite happy to roster you all on if you want want to turn. Um, But even like um, Colin was praying this morning about that lady who was here, who, who was in hospital and sick, she was faithfully praying and, and that was her ministry. As Christians, we receive this blessing of Abraham by faith. 
So part of our redemption is that we are able to be a blessing to those around us. Jesus himself came to serve and not to be served. Are we seeking to serve God in some form of faithful ministering? Thirdly, worship. How should we respond to what Christ has done for us? We should praise and worship him. And as I mentioned before, Isaiah prophesied about those who were redeemed from Babylon. They will come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now there are many, many scriptures in the Bible about worship and I've selected this next one uh, for this morning. And it's, um, I'll better tell you where it is, Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, just in closing also I just want to look at a couple of other points as well. So are we living life as if Jesus is the Lord? And also it follows on from this, um, I just want to talk briefly about what our value is in Christ. Because a high price was paid for our redemption, it makes sense that we are of value to God. And the Bible says a lot about his church being precious to him. Uh, here's a couple of examples. From Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And also 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who have had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Now of course all of those things, we, we, we have all of those things or we are all of those things because Christ has redeemed us. This isn't about our own self-worth or our own good works. All the same, Christ paid a high price to redeem us from the meaninglessness that we had, from our aimless conduct. We are not worthless and your life is not meaningless. You are chosen. You are a part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a holy nation. You are one of his own special people. And lastly, the the last thing that I want to look at, and this has been touched on by Don Carson this morning when he talked about the resurrection, and that is the day of redemption. When we look at the Israelites in the Old Testament, we learn that they were redeemed from both Egypt and Babylon. But despite this, they were looking forward to a fuller redemption. Similarly, God's people today are looking forward to a fuller redemption. We have been redeemed from guilt and judgement. But wait, there's more. Our redemption is not complete. Scripture talks about the day of the redemption and this is the day when the process of redemption shall be completed within us and around us. 
And these are some of the things that Scripture tells us about that time. We will, we shall be made perfect. There will be the redemption of our bodies and we've spoken a little bit about this this morning as well. Um, some of us, uh, when we're younger, we think, hey, our body's pretty good, we, we, we're doing all right. Some of us are a little bit more realistic and we know it doesn't matter what shape our body is in, we still know that there is weakness there. We, we know that it, it's going to decay and, and get older. So there will be the redemption of our bodies. All of creation will be freed from the bondage to decay. Uh, we will also share in the freedom of the glory of being God's children. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is the seal and the first fruits of our final redemption. So we have been redeemed, but there is still a more full of redemption coming. And the Holy Spirit, God has sent the Holy Spirit upon us as the first fruit and the seal of that final redemption. So part of our redemption is looking forward to that great day. And this brings us back to the words of Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Let's pray. Lord, we are just here in this morning in your presence, Lord, and Lord, we are just forever grateful and thankful for what you have done for us. Lord, we just thank you that you loved us um, even though we were lost in our sin. You loved us so much that you sent your Son. And Lord, we just acknowledge this morning the great cost that Christ has paid for us. The great cost that he has paid for our freedom so that we can be brought back from slavery, so that we can be brought back from bondage to sin, that we are no longer exiled from you, that we are no longer held captive by the things of this world, by the trappings, by the temptations, by the sin that can just so take a hold of us. Lord, we just thank you so much that in you we have freedom. Lord, we also just thank you that we are part of, of your great family, Lord, your great kingdom, your great nation, Lord God. Lord, we have so many that are around us. We have the people that are within this church, Lord, that are standing beside us in your name. We have the people around the city who are standing beside us in your name. We have people around this world, Lord. We have those who have gone before us and, Lord, we have those who are yet to come. Lord, your kingdom, your holy nation is a, a massive, massive thing. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you chose us and loved us so much that we can be part of that. And Lord, as we go into this week, Lord, may we focus on um, you being the Lord of our lives and living that out within our own lives, Lord God. Lord, may we seek holiness. 
May we seek to faithfully serve you and Lord to minister to those around us. Lord, may we seek to worship you and praise you and lift you up, Lord. Amen.